Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host and star of the show, Jim Cott. And this is Cott's Corner, episode 237 right now on the network. And just for those audience members that were jokingly questioning um, if ballplayers have culture, that's my favorite violinist, Fritz Chrysler, who happened to be Ty Cobb's favorite violinist also. So yes, I have a favorite violinist, so I, I do have some culture. I do eat with forks and knives as well. So uh, Jim, welcome back to your show and glad to have you back after it was about about a week and a half, two week uh, adventure. You've been all over the place, Hall of Fame, card shows. Um, can't wait to get caught up. Yeah, it's uh, it, it has been a great time. It started with the uh, uh, Meg Matthews and James and uh, uh, their two buddies that uh, came in uh, from down where you are in Myrtle Beach and, yeah. and uh, went to Raleigh and it started with a great time at uh, the Hall of Fame with the with the New Zealand kids, and uh, yeah, it's been quite a busy ten days. Yeah, James and James Matthews, Harry Carmichael, and Alex Taylor, and of course Meg Matthews is the engineer that's that steered this whole trip for those young men, and uh, we enjoyed him as well. We'll certainly we'll certainly want to get to that that connectivity between Myrtle to Cooperstown, back to to Raleigh Durham for those boys and. I think they ended it with an Astros game, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, I, as I talked before the show, we were talking through our content, and this is my immaturity audience, so I apologize. So I'm eating the frosting off the cake before I eat the cake right here. So I had heard that you and some of the Hall of Famers had a nice meeting with Rob Manford to discuss the progress of the new rules. Would you so indulge? Yeah, every year uh, at induction time, there's a Hall of Fame dimmer uh, dinner members only. And, um, you know, it can get kind of tense where, where some of the, uh, the hall of famers are a little upset with what's going on in the game of baseball. So this year we sort of changed the atmosphere and it was a very casual coffee and breakfast sit around the table. It wasn't, uh, attended by everyone. Uh, but Rob, uh, you know, went over the state of baseball and then we got a chance to ask questions and, uh, there, he really appreciated the input, and I think uh, we appreciated the opportunity. And guys that had been in several of these, uh, Eddie Murray, they thought that this was probably the best uh, dialogue that uh, p- former Hall of Fame players have had with the commissioner in a long time. And, uh, of course, Whitey Herzog was there at age 90, and Whitey has, you know, he has his hearing aid in. He doesn't hear real well, so he doesn't really know if anyone else is talking. <laughs> he comes out, what are you going to do about this rule that a reliever has to face three men? <laughs> and, of course, I've talked about that for years and, and uh, since it came out, how, uh, you know, it hurts the strategy of a manager. And so uh, uh, the commissioner did admit that the positive effect that the pitch clock has had and everyone in the room, it was unanimous how everyone liked the pitch clock and said, please don't alter that during postseason play. And that has kind of covered up a lot of other ills that the game had. So they may, in due time, and I hope they do it quickly, eliminate that rule. Um, the other one that came up for some serious discussion was the extra inning game with starting with a man on second. And Jim Tomey had a, had a great suggestion, and everybody agreed with that. Is, uh, it was a combination. First, a lot of players felt, well, why don't you play at least 12 innings? Uh, 
as a regular baseball. And then at the end of the 12th, in the 13th, put a runner on first base instead of second. And that would force teams to bunt a man over, to hit and run, to play some real baseball. Instead of just trying to, with a man on second, trying to slug away and get that, you know, RBI. Because very few teams advance the runners successfully. Uh, so that met with a lot of uh, with a lot of approval. Uh, those are the those are the two main ones. I think uh, I think as the commissioner mentioned, and all of us agreed that what the game is meant is missing with the specialization is uh, the star starting pitcher. Uh, and you know, around trade deadline time now. Uh, Scherzer was traded. I'm sure that pretty quick Verlander may move on, but there's a lot of attraction to get these star starting pitchers. And yet they're not around at the end of the game. Verlander went five and a third yesterday. I think he threw over a hundred pitches. So the specialization of the game has, has taken away that attraction of, uh, coming out to see, uh, say, Pedro Martinez against Clayton Kershaw or, uh, you know, if they're in the same era. And we always look forward to those kind of duels. And uh, he would like to see the game, and I think we all would, but uh, I think we're kind of whistling in the forest. As long as the propeller heads have control of the game, it's only going to get worse, not better, that the role of the starting pitcher is going to be diminished. And uh, and uh, Rob, uh, the commissioner, felt that really uh, hurts the the appeal of the game, even though Saturday uh, was the all-time attendance high for one day in a long time. So you still have millions of people that uh, that that like it, and I'm happy about that. I don't happen to be one that does watch a lot of it because with all the um, you know with all the pitching changes and six seven pitchers on each team per game, why? Uh, I, I'd throw a, I'd throw rocks through my TV screen eventually having to watch that happen. But, uh, you know, you might have questions about uh, some things that were your, on your mind that came up. But those were a couple of the issues that really attracted a lot of conversation. What made this year better, I guess, less contentious, contentious than years in the past? Was it the absence of certain people? Was it the well, Maybe yeah, I think guys come in. Uh, uh, the guys come into that. They've been at the. Uh, they've been on the golf course. Uh, well, no, on Sunday, so they've been at the induction. It's a hot day. Uh, you know, they're they're the anxiety level is raised, and uh, guys just want to kind of vent their feelings. And I think that's where it all kind of exploded. But having it in a very tranquil atmosphere on a quiet Sunday morning before the induction, this is the first time they've tried it. Uh, I would say there were 48 current Hall of Famers there, and I'd say we probably had about 30 of them in the meeting uh, because there is no question a segment of the Hall of Fame members that just are not happy with the way the game is gone, and they want to blame the commissioner. They don't understand that, you know, Rob Manfred can't just push a button and say analytics are going away or you're, you have to pitch your starting pitcher. You have to limit your pitching staff to 10 pitchers or whatever it is. He doesn't have that kind of power. And so I think there are some guys that are so frustrated they don't understand that. Uh, but the group that was in that room, it was a very civil uh, back-and-forth dialogue, uh, you know, from both sides, from the players and from Rob's. Yeah. 
any uh and i've been watching the stolen base thing carefully it's something i've always admired in baseball and the ricky hendersons the lou brocks the tim raines vince coleman um i get concerned i'm seeing these gaudy stolen base numbers right now if at some point in time we're gonna forget just how significant those type of players are and you know, do we have to go back in time and put an asterisk by these stolen bases like they did during the steroid era with home runs? Yeah, I think there was a, you know, Johnny Bench mentioned now the way catchers are taught to catch, which I would say to a man, former catchers going with my former roommate, Phil Roof, who was a longtime instructor with the Twins and, uh, you know, was just a picture-perfect defensive catcher. They are not happy at all with the way catchers slap at the ball and try to frame it and the way they have one knee splayed out where uh, most feel that they're not really in position to, you know, to quick uh, pop and throw like they did years ago. Uh, then, of course, I think the limiting the number of throws over to uh, over to first base, it's all added toward uh, toward more stolen bases. I think it, it, it kind of in a nutshell, all this stuff goes back to, do, do you recall or did you ever cross paths with the great late John Scalinos? I know who he is, yeah. He wrote the famous essay, 17 Inches. Yeah, 17 Inches. We talk about that on the show with Mark yeah. Wiley and Will George all the time. Oh, and I, and I got to meet him when he was a coach with USA. For those who don't know him, he was a longtime college coach and well-respected. And he wrote this essay about the plate is 17 inches. It always has been, but now... With a lot of the rules and training, we're beginning to expand the 17-inch plate. So, it, it, not in a literal sense, but you know, figuratively, it the game is expanding some of the some of the things that have made it uh, great in the past, and the stolen base rule is one of them. So, uh, that's why you can't really you can't really compare just to, to kind of deviate. I was just sending it out an email to a friend of mine who's an avid fan about, you know, what Shohei Otani is, has done is, is terrific, but you know, Babe Ruth never played during the DH. So he still has the lifetime winning his lifetime percentage for a left-hand pitcher. And then of course, when he was a hitter, he only hit when he's a pitcher, he only pitched. And uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of, uh, players like, say, John Olerud, uh, Dave Winfield, Paul O'Neill, that were capable of playing a position and pitching, but that was just unheard of doing. So take nothing away from, from Otani, but when you go back to, say, comparing Otani to Babe Ruth, you can only compare players in that era to players in a different era. And what were the rules? Uh, you know, years ago, there were no playoffs. There was no division series. There was only 16 teams. The, the talent pool wasn't as pollu as uh, diluted. Uh, the game wasn't as specialized. So you just take it era by era. And I think the, uh, the young people that have grown up today, if they love the game the way it is, well, good for them. I hope they come out and baseball continues to be successful. Yeah, it's well put. Now, do you do you recall the catching thing is always close to my heart because my my son Tanner catches and the slapping at the baseball I hate as well. Do you recall what uh, why that was so offensive to the catchers in the room when they started talking about that? Yeah, I, th I think because now they're the statistic of framing 
And that was what uh, Johnny Bench had said is so bogus. Because, you know, now you have catchers that are slapping at the ball and trying to bring it in just to to be able to gain framing points. And, you know, most umpires, I think, respect catchers that catch the ball. Now, as you being a coach and with your son being a catcher, you know that the, the real smart catchers always tip that glove gently. If it was a high pitch, they tipped it down. If it sure. was an outside pitch, they tipped it in. But now they've gotten into this flagrant, this, you know, catching the ball and slapping it over. And I don't think it gives the umpire a good look at it. And then most, I think, most with the uh, uh, bench, I'm trying to remember if there was so Craig Piggio was there. He did a little catching in his day. But I think to a man, they all felt like uh, too many of the statistics uh, that they have out there are trying to cause players to play the game, I guess I would say, in an unnatural way. And that catching and slapping at the ball and the way they're positioning themselves is one of them. I know in talking to Ryan Jeffers in Minnesota, when he heard uh, heard me say that, I thought, wow, why are they catching like that? And, and he mentioned the comfort level, that it's easier on the knees. Well, that's nice, but I think from a pitcher standpoint, the top priority is not comfort. The top priority is holding that runner so he doesn't steal. Yeah. And, uh, You'll build up your legs. Catchers have caught for years that way. So the fact that the guys today now, I, I will say catchers are bigger now. So maybe that makes it a little more difficult for them to get down there. But uh, I think in a lot of these cases, players have been doing it for years and doing it successfully. I don't know why they couldn't do it that way today. Yeah, it's like most things. It, it gets It's influence over excellence. Sometimes I see it on YouTube and enough things hit that brain with no filter and everybody thinks that's the way of the world. I, uh, this, I, I, I say this half jokingly, half not. I outlaw that on my team. Um, part of it's because when you receive as a catcher, just like a middle infielder, when you're receiving a double play, I think you want to receive deep, which means closer to your body because that transfer to the throw is, is easier. Plus it, it allows from the catching standpoint, it allows that umpire to see the ball as long as possible. And at the end of the day, that's who's calling the game back there. And then that slapping out, I got asked by, I can't remember which hitter, maybe been Will Clark when he was on the show with Jeff Fry, but he uh, he and I don't know each other well, but I think he, he got the idea that I was a little ornery in my day. And he goes, what would you have done if some catcher stuck that glove out on you? I said, I would have probably gone about three inches back in the box and my next pitch, I would have strided backwards and taken that glove right off his hand. And he laughed. He goes, that's my boy. And uh <laughs> Yeah, I hope that's not what Ian Happ did the other day to Contreras, you know, that backswing and uh, hit him in the head. And I, I, But, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, you don't want uh, a catcher sticking that glove up there too close, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think trying to, trying to create numbers to show that you're a good framing catcher, uh, you know, has caused you to try to catch unnaturally. I'm with you. The catchers that were really good, they kind of let the ball come into them and they gradually moved it in. They gave not only the pitcher, but they gave the umpire a nice, uh, a nice quiet uh, target. Yeah. And I think the other thing that where they may be wasting their time is that with the, with the electronic strike zone that the, that the umpires are trained to look at the plate where the pitch is, I don't think they're being influenced by, by uh, by that kind of movement by a catcher. Uh, 
while we're talking about catchers and, and strike zones, this came up and it was interesting. I think Derek Jeter first mentioned it about, uh, no, I think it was Frank Thomas that first said, we have to do something about the strike zone. Uh, the low strike is not being called. You know, years ago, the American League umpires used the balloon protector, so they stood straight up, and you got the benefit of a high pitch, but not the low pitch. Now, in the National League, with the inside protector and the umpires peeking over that inside corner, and everybody wonders why they do that, well, they do it because with the left-hand hitter, uh, they don't want to be in the outside corner and be subject to getting that foul ball hit square in the mask. Uh, and that's why they peek over that inside corner, and there's a little more guesswork involved in the outside corner. But the pitch that is missed more often, and it has been, I'll go back 25 years when I talked to Sandy Alderson when he was in the commissioner's office, and he had said at the time, we have video of a 1,000 pitches that are borderline at the knees that should have been called strikes that were called balls. And, of course, I, in a good way, always argued with my broadcast partner, Kenny Singleton, you know, a pitch would come in and the catcher would catch it, and it looked like about a foot off the ground. Well, see, the catcher's six feet behind the plate. So if you look at it from a side view, that ball came across the front knee. And I raised that question with Rob. I said, if they go to the electronic strike zone, is it going to have depth? In other words, from the front of the plate to the back of the plate. Yeah. A breaking ball comes in and it catches the front outside corner of the plate. And then by the time the catcher catches it, it is several inches outside. So if you're watching it TV or maybe even as an umpire, it's very easy to call that pitch a ball. But if the strike zone had some depth to it, uh, they would see that that pitch is a strike. Now, is, is the electronic strike zone, are they going to be able to do that? Well, they can't yet. So my answer was, well, then take the whole thing away and just let the umpires call the way they're trained to call, put the human element back in the game, because you don't have it exactly correct yet the way it should be. And uh, that low strike is the one that for years has been, uh, you know, I, when I went to the National League, I thought, wow, this is nice. You're getting those borderline pitches around the knees that you never got in the American League. So that was a big topic of of discussion to uh, revisit the strike zone and what they can do to maybe make it a little more liberal. Uh, I don't, I don't want as a former pitcher, I don't ask them to, if fans remember Eric Gregg, where he usually kind of umpired the uh, Miami, Mar the Florida Marlins right into the world series with that 22 inch plate he had. I don't expect umpires to give a pitcher pitches that are way outside or way inside. But the top to bottom uh, has been shrunk a lot. And, and that's a, an area that uh, I think everybody agreed there that had to be revisited. Yeah. No, well, it sounds like it was productive in the Senate. Hopefully he realizes he has uh, obviously a really small collection of the greatest of all time giving him feedback. So hopefully he took that and will do something with it and take. Yeah, I think in the end, he just said, you know, he, he, he thought this was the most productive meeting. And he said it really gave him some opinions from, you know, players who play, you know, when you collectively look at the players in that group, uh, we've all played for a long time. 
and experienced a lot of, you know, in, in say in my case, different eras and different eras and see how things have changed. So he will in turn be able to present this to the competition committee to, uh, you know, you say ownership, but why should ownership be deciding what rule they never played? Why, why should they be deciding what rules are being used on the game? You want, you want guys who have played the game before. You want guys who are playing the game now that can say, you know, yeah, I think we could, we could live with that or adjust with that. They should have a say in the manner too. I remember when they lowered the mound in 68, uh, after 68, they lowered it in 69 because of Bob Gibson's great year. They never asked us, pitchers, they never asked, hey, we're going to lower the mound. What do you think of that? I'd say, well, I don't like it. Right. <laughs> I like that slope. Well, they never asked us. They just changed it. And, when did they uh, raise it? Was that in 64? Was that? No, it was, well, for as long as I came up, the, the mound was the same from the time I came up in the 50s. And then when Gibby had that great year, they lowered it from, I think, 15 to 10 or 15 to 12. Yeah. And so it took that uh, slope. You know, we always enjoyed going out to L.A. and pitch on that Dodger mound because they had it sloped for, for Sandy Koufax because he came right over the top. And, man, that was just the best mound. Uh, they're all supposed to be regulated, but as happens in all sports teams, you know, the old deflate gate with the footballs, sure. team, teams tend to find ways to do things to sort of help their own team. Oh, absolutely. With that, and with uh, I bring that up because we're at we're at like the lowest number of three hundred hitters we've had in a long time, and I think that was the year the year that Gibson had his great year. That there may have been the a, a number that matches our. I think we have nine three hundred hitters right now in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I think it, when Yaz won the Triple Crown in '67, I think he hit three hundred one. Oh wow! Yeah, in the American League. Well, in in that. That necessarily isn't the mound or the strike zone. That's, I mean, my my former teammate Rod Carew hit over 300 15 times, seven batting titles. He watches hitters in spring training, and they don't want any, they never ask him what to do. Well, now the Twins are on pace to strike out more times than any other team in the history of the game. And Within the franchise, they struck out more times at the all by the All Star break. They had struck out more times than twenty six of the previous Twins teams did in the entire year. And I'll give you an example, and, and I'm surprised that a guy of this caliber took that long to figure it out. But Carlos Correa, uh, you know. I think he felt like he should be the big run producer in Minnesota. In Houston, we had Alex Brigman, he had Altuve, he had George Springer. Uh, you know, he had a supporting cast. So now in Minnesota, they're hitting him fourth or fifth. Well, he's striking out three times a game. Now they moved him to the leadoff spot. And he started to get a hit here, a hit there. And all of a sudden, I see his quote, well, now that I'm hitting in the leadoff spot, I've developed a little different approach. I'm just trying to hit the ball to all fields. Well, really, Carlos? They're paying you $35 million a year, and you, it took you two months to figure out that that trying to launch every ball out of the ballpark isn't working. And so that's what's caused a lot of these strikeouts and low averages that gradually I think guys are getting back to, uh, to using the whole field, but yeah. uh, still not enough of them. Well, you only bat leadoff once a game, so that's uh, ironic that it took them. 
that subtle shift to shift his paradigm. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think what it did, even though he might only lead off once a game, I think it it sort of mind wise changed his approach to trying to lift and launch every ball out of the ballpark. Yeah, we had, uh, I, and I, I meant to tell you this before. I finally found a way to positively use iPads and cell phones during a baseball game. Would you like to hear? Sure. <laughs> um, you're not going to want to fight me. I promise you. It's uh, so our team now, our one-on-one teams that we have, we're trying to develop young players in our backyard. We do a, a group thing on Sundays where guys are logged into their iPads or their phones. So we have a group education during the games. We turn the volume down so they're not getting influenced by any propaganda that, you know, announcers may or may not say. And, and then we just talk the game throughout. And uh, little things like uh, last night, the, we, it was a Yankees-Orioles game. And, you know, one of, the, one of the kids said, it doesn't look like the Orioles are just consumed with launch angle. They're hitting line drives all over the field. So it gave us a chance to look at approach. Um, the night before, Volpe, runner on second, one out with Judge on deck, tries to advance with the ball in front of him. That sparked a whole bunch of dialogue about base running. How, you know, ball in front of you, you retreat, ball behind you, you go on the ground. In the air with one out, you know, you're going to go halfway and then tag when appropriate and no outs, go halfway or go tag and then go halfway if appropriate. So it's been sparking some. We, we, we finally, I, I don't agree with it in the dugout. I think that's insane. I hate the electronics in there, but we, I thought, you know what, I'm going to start getting in tune with this generation a little bit. And so we started using them to help them learn how to watch games better um, in the, uh, in the off days. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean, I know that uh, telecasts, uh, I think in the last couple of years, I was, since I quit doing games on TV, I don't watch uh, many, if any of them. I, I guess it's that old habit. You know, you sit down in a restaurant, and the game's on, and you just gravitate toward it to watch it because, yeah. you know, we love the game. But I try not to watch uh, too many of them. But, uh, yeah, I think that's they're now inviting questions even from the audience, and I think that is a good way to learn. That, that kind of – reminded me of another topic that came up uh, that I think, again, some of the veteran Hall of Famers that were in there said, uh, we're talking about uh, the the iPads and the dugout and, and uh, all the analytic information that comes in the dugout. And uh, they'd like to see it get, you know, get rid of it. So the, um, so the manager could just uh, use his own skills, brain, gut instincts, and the vote uh, there was a vote among managers, uh, kind of a straw poll that uh, the commissioner held, and the the overwhelming majority wanted an analytic person in the dugout. That's scary. Yeah, I know Bruce Bochy and Dusty Baker and Buck Showalter didn't vote for it, but that that gives you some insight into how they are becoming dependent. I mean, there hasn't been a manager fired yet, I'm sure, because how are you going to fire the manager? And he goes upstairs and says, well, you don't even let me make out the lineup. Why are you going to fire me? Yeah. So uh, I, I think pretty quick we're getting to the point where you won't even see winning and losing pitcher. You'll see winning science department, losing science department. That's how that's how down the rabbit hole the, the game is going from uh, from a scientific standpoint. Well, that, that straw poll is frightening on two levels. One, I almost hope it's fabricated, and uh, that would make that would make me feel better than actually baseball guys managing teams having that, uh, I guess, lack of that much self-reliance to be yeah, able to well, it, was a, it was an actual vote because everybody yeah. brought it up, and we were shocked. 
that, uh, but that's how the younger, well, that's why you see some of the younger managers and coaching staffs that have, some coaching staffs have zero playing experience in the big leagues, but they have a lot of scientific knowledge, which I think is good in training. And, you know, like you just mentioned with kids on the, on the iPad asking questions, uh, all that stuff is good. I would, I would love to have a, uh, from a pitching standpoint, have somebody that had all this scientific knowledge about spin rate and at least try it. And then on my own say, this works for me and that doesn't. But once the game starts, I don't want anybody that hasn't played coming out to the mound and have a voice in, in what's happening because they have no clue what's going on out there. So why they keep running out there. But the answer is organizations are hiring uh, guys, I understand uh, David Cohn uh, uh, auditioned or interviewed for the pitching coach job with the Yankees. Here's a seasoned veteran who was a great pitcher, and obviously he didn't get the job. So that kind of gives you an idea what what teams are looking for. Yeah, I, I I did a thing on Facebook about what you're talking about the other day. I got asked the question. They asked me to geek out a little bit and talk the language of the propeller heads, and I, I used the number the the how many bits per second your brain processes um, your conscious brain as opposed to your subconscious and your subconscious being more of your gut. And it was a 500,000 to one ratio leaning towards the impact of your gut as opposed to your conscious brain, especially during competition. So yeah, there's, I mean, you would think that you call them learned people who have book smarts would understand that concept that when you're competing, you need to, shut your brain down, let your body do what it was trained to do. When you're in learning, deep learning or studying, that's the time to tap into your conscious mind. But uh, the two can't mix. You can't mix the two. Yeah. You know, I think I mentioned this to you before on the air that, you know, my battle cry when when I left the dugout in Chicago, uh, I remember saying, okay, guys, let's cut our heads off and let our body go to work. And, and then uh, – my golf buddies that I, I play with and they see how, you know, I step up, I look at the target, I swing and they know, oh yeah, you're the guy that says study long, study wrong. I said, absolutely. I learned over time that usually the first impulse is the best. Like pitching wise, the first instinct that comes in your mind, you or the, or the catcher, that, that seems to be the best. Uh, it doesn't take your brain that long to process. You don't have to stand out there in, in, of course, you don't get that much time anymore and say, well, let's see, what should I throw them? Fastball, curveball? No, bingo. You got to know immediately. And I, I think that that is going to help uh, pitchers develop more skill. They might even find out that, uh, I hope they are now, that by giving the hitter less time to get comfortable, uh, that working at a quick pace can give them a bit of an advantage. Yeah. Well, it sounds like everybody is in favor of that. I was skeptical when it started. I just hate over legislation because, and I, and I also am stubborn in the fact that why do we have to legislate something that should be natural for people? Um, well, you know, I agree with you. I think, you know, if, uh, if they played the, uh, I think it's the advent of the sports psychologists uh, that have trained these guys to go through their thought process and then you add in their gloves that no company has still been able to come out with a pair of hitting gloves that doesn't need refastening every 15 seconds. <laughs> and uh, there's one way to eliminate that, and that's just to do away with hitting gloves altogether. 
Oof, you talk about rebellion. There's yeah, uh well, yeah, well, we, you know, pitchers have you know, we we have uh, it's been a long time since we've had any kind of a say in what goes on on the oh yeah on the Let's, field. Most most of like, it is geared toward offense, and and my my answer to that is uh, well, go and work on your hitting and learn how to hit. Yeah, Wade Boggs was adamant about spreading the word about how, and of course, nobody will ever do that. He had 200 hits and 100 walks. I think he did that in three seasons. Yeah, you know, nobody will ever do that again. I don't think he used batting gloves either, to be honest, Boggs. I think he was one of the few that did yeah, not. I may not. I know uh, Posada. Did. Well, of course, it started with Hawk Harrelson when he was with Cleveland and he played golf that day and he got a blister and he put on a glove and oh, this feels pretty good. And then along came the batting gloves and then you had pine tar to that and then you had pine tar to the bat and and. Uh, and that's why the uh, the hitters are allowed to do that to get a better grip on the bat. Sure. But the pitchers aren't allowed to do anything to get a better grip on the ball. Now, I will say this came out also in discussion that uh, Major League Baseball has has had several, I'm, I'm talking about double-digit 12 to 15 prototypes, I believe from Dow Chemical in Midland, Michigan, of a baseball that would have a tackiness to it. It would be packaged in a foil pouch. And uh, what the what the shelf life is, I don't know. But they are working on trying that so that a pitcher would have a baseball that already has a little tackiness to it. And uh, because there's, uh, there's a lot of time wasted now with as soon as they come off the mound, the umpire goes through. You know, the customary check in the glove. He's not checking the glove that close, but they know they have to do it. Yeah. And, you know, that that can uh, that can take a little a little time. So uh, I think uh, if they could come up with that, that would be a positive as well. Yeah. I'm all for pitchers getting to use whatever they need to get the feel for the ball. Because for me as a hitter, I want them to have as much control of that thing as possible because they could kill me at any minute. Hitters, God bless them, whatever they want to do to get the stick. But I was one of those odd birds that I didn't use. I barely used pine tar on my bat and I didn't use batting gloves. I couldn't stand them. I took a lot of pride in my calluses being my, yeah. my stick. Now, obviously um, you got to work those up, but uh, yeah, I was not a batting glove person uh, with the, with the wood bat, which now, nowadays uh, the bats are so slick. You almost have to. Yeah. Now a, um, I think it was, was it Giolito that hit somebody in the face? Uh, Two nights ago, I'm trying to think the hitter was that, of course, Kyle Farmer with the Twins. And we always, we always sell, I say we, and, and I know uh, people don't always like to hear, well, the way you did it back then, we don't care about that because that doesn't work anymore. But I always felt like getting hit in the head was very difficult to happen. You, you could just react so quickly. But what happens now with the new hitting approach is they're already starting to move. They're so conscious of that ball being thrown 100 miles an hour, so they start their move quickly, and their head and their upper body is already moving toward the pitcher yeah. as the pitch comes at them, and then it's, they can't move out of the way. Uh, it's dangerous. Which is sad, so I, I agree with you. I think for their protection, yeah, let the hitters get a little uh, – pitchers get a little grip on the on the ball so that doesn't happen. Yep, and it's, it's a similar to, to pitching in that when you land – you, you want to be, uh, you want your hip and your shoulder to be your locators. When you hit, it should be the same thing. You should be parallel to the plate as long as possible. And that's what they're not doing now. They're, they're opening up way too early. And it's, 
forget about the hitting mechanics. I disagree with those, what they're doing, but it's, it's dangerous what they're doing. Yeah. Super dangerous. Well, you've, you had some other hall of fame experience. You had personal one, obviously. And then you had, uh, the pre hall of fame with the boys, the Kiwi boys. Um, did you want to jump to one of those too? Yeah, I, I think, you know, first of all, they made such an impression, James and, and Harry and uh, Adam. Was it Adam? Alex. Alex, that's right. Yeah, they made such an impression on uh, uh, Whitney at the Hall of Fame had arranged for a, a car to pick them up at the Albany Airport. And the driver I saw later, and he said, oh, he was so impressed by the the quality of the behavior of these kids. And you know, they went through the Hall of Fame. They were so respectful. I mean, you might have seen the pictures when they got the whole Babe Ruth's bat. You know, oh, their yeah. eyes were wide open. So it was so much fun just to see them enjoy, uh, you know, where where this game started. Because in New Zealand, they play a lot of softball. They play cricket. They probably played a little rugby. But baseball is still relatively new. And as I told James and, and Harry and Alex, I said, if one of you guys becomes a big league player, like Ozzie Virgil did coming out of the Dominican Republic back in the 50s, I think, that will open the gates. Because as you saw, that Harry built like a linebacker. Isn't oh, he? yeah. Oh, my goodness. They are a strong, they are a strong race. And I think uh, uh, by seeing, you know, how baseball – is accepted in this country. This is how, what great fans they are. When Meg and the boys flew into Houston, I think it's a 14, it might be a 16 hour flight from Auckland to Houston. They got in, they immediately got a car and went right to Minute Maid Field and saw the last five innings of the Astros game. That's how eager they were to see baseball after, after that long flight. But, uh, uh, after visiting the Hall of Fame and, and uh, you know, seeing how impressed they were, I, I've mentioned it before. I think every organization should, uh, I know they physically can't get every player to go to Cooperstown, but they, there should be access to a, a narrated CD to show in spring training to every team, you know, where this game, where this game started. Like if you look at the newspaper account, of the original box scores that were published in the paper, the only two things that they recorded were runs and outs. And I thought, isn't that apropos? Because yeah. I preach today when they say, hey, uh, did they count your pitches? I said, no, we counted outs, you know. And, and was, so I said, the two things that my favorite statistic is that if I get 27 outs in a regulation game, and at the end of that game, we have one more run than the other team. Our winning percentage is 100%. And so the original box scores, that's all they did. They counted runs and outs. <laughs> now we now you need a, a box scores reading them is like reading a spreadsheet. Oh, without question. It's overcomplicated, without a doubt. I know all three young men and Meg uh, and, the, and, the, and Harry and Alex's family back home appreciated the gift that you provided them. And I agree with you. I think that our American players, especially our professional players that are, you know, getting a shot to become a part of history, that they should have a sense of reverence and part of their education piece to becoming a pro ball player should be a piece of the hall of fame in some capacity. So I would recommend that to the commissioner's office. Um, if I were, well, I wouldn't be invited to that little private breakfast, but if I got to sneak in, I'd, I'd raise my hand and, and offer that 
as a suggestion? Because I do think well, you know, that might- I, as a as a former player, knowing the way you know I grew up and, and respected the game and learned about the game, knowing that now, if I were somehow in a position of authority, <coughs> excuse me, as a general manager and owner, I would demand in spring training, like if I was the owner of the Twins or the head of baseball ops, I would say, look, we're going to have a film, we're going to have a little video here, the Hall of Fame, and we're going to watch. Everybody's going to watch it and kind of see where this game came from, not only on the field, but economically, how, you know, it's become such a a great way for, you know, for everybody, for the young players now to to make a living even. And I'm happy for them, even with a limited number of of years, they could play maybe for eight years. And if they have a good year or two, they're going to make a ton of money and be able to take care of themselves maybe – for a lifetime. And of course, years ago, that didn't happen because then we had to work in the off season just to kind of make ends meet for that particular year. Yeah. I think an education overall, but also an education per team. I would think a team would want to have their current players understand the history of it and have a sense of reverence for a team. It's, uh, but that's, uh, I I don't know. Those are things we can shelve, but I, I, I agree with you. But the, the boys performed very well over here. All three boys competed. Yeah, I saw your text, and that's good. Yeah, they're they're learning the game the right way, and having you down there coach them, and and I think now you may know the person. I think he was in the Texas organization. I think somebody's gone over there to kind of manage their national team. Yeah, um, they're they're getting a little bit more. Um, in, they're getting influenced a little bit more by our professional game in that sense. I'm, I can't remember the name. But um, yeah, the the boys we put them up we put them up in the what's considered the college bracket. So the teams we played against, they had a chance to play against kids that are going to be entering college in two weeks. So yeah, um, that that included James and Alex and Harry, who like I agree is built like a tank. Um, he is a rugby player, look like. Oh and, yeah, but it included my youngest son Tanner, who's you know seventh grader. He played in that. Uh, that same team with James and my, my older son, David, who's an eighth grader. And uh, it was a great experience for all of them. They competed like crazy. I mean, they went after it. And um, But I think uh, what, even from start to finish, uh, James, Alex, Harry uh, got their feet wet initially, but really made their mark uh, by the tournament's end. So the trip was successful in many regards and then capped off by their opportunity to get to meet you in person and experience the great history of our game. And um, I know their their heads are still spinning back there in New Zealand, being back. Well, you know, I, I was motivated. They were they were encouraging me to come back again. But at my age, which is now 84, I just I said, I don't know, you know, physically, medically, if I should do that. Well, now I'm reading an account about the World Cup over there for the Women's World Cup. And there's an 84-year-old man from our country who took, I believe, three of his granddaughters who are all soccer players and took them all over to Auckland. So I said, well, if he's doing it, maybe I'm going to rethink this because I'd love to go back over there. Uh, Before we sign off, I do want to say one word too, in in terms of the hall of fame. And, and recently I've, I've had the opportunity to be at a lot of uh, memorabilia signings. And I'm telling you for the most part, there's always a scammer or two, but for the most part, these are the best and most polite, and appreciative fans that you will run into. It is so heartwarming to have fans, you know, come up and say, man, we appreciate the the memories that all you guys brought us. So 
between Cooperstown and then I was recently in Chicago uh, at the National Sports Collectors Show. I think they had 68,000 people there the first wow. day. Uh, and just to uh, to get to talk to uh, to the fans at those at those particular locations, they are uh, they are just really what makes this game great. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. And the uh, with with our show here, though, before I sign you off, too, I want to uh, I want to ask you about the trade deadline. August first, you mentioned you don't like that that date. Oh to, yeah, well, just... we can go a half hour. I just <laughs> I hate that. You know, as a fan, I sit there and say I want Texas to lose every game. You know, because they're just trying to buy their way into the tournament. See, when I came up, uh, the trade deadline was June 15. I think it ought to be pushed back to June 1. Okay, you, you I know managers I played for, like Chuck Tanner, uh, Tom Kelly, I didn't play for him, but I followed him. The first 40 games of the season, they kind of took a look at what they had coming out of spring training. And was this the team when we left spring training that we thought we would have? Well, now, if you have some needs – on the 1st of June, you've already played 40 games. Okay, now go ahead and make your trades, whatever you want to do. But after that, you don't claim anybody on waivers. You don't do anything. You only play with players in your own organization. Somebody gets hurt, you call a player up from AAA. Because this, if I'm a fan, like right now, if I'm a season ticket holder of the Mets, that probably paid a lot more money for their season tickets this year based on getting the talent that they got. Yeah. And now they're tanking. And I'm saying, I, I'm not going to come out. And I, I paid this money to see Verlander and Scherzer. And uh, of course, Edwin Diaz, an unfortunate accident. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm paying money to see these guys. Now, even the White Sox who are not in contention, but I saw a couple of White Sox fans in Chicago. And, you know, they said, hey, I, I don't want to go to the game now. They're, they're, you know, they've thrown in the towel or trading away all their, uh, good to see. They traded Giolito. They just got rid of Lynn and uh, and uh, Joe Kelly. Um, so you know, it's a disservice to the fans, I think, to uh, to to take all that money and not continue to try to put out the best product. Well, I agree. I, I uh, and I, I know Scherzer's heading back to heading back to his former pitching coach with Mike Maddox in Texas. And I would imagine you think, uh, and we're this show is being taped. Uh, seven hours before trade deadline is up. So I would imagine you think as well, Verlander is probably on his way out as well. He might be. I mean, I don't think I have great respect for Mike Maddox. I don't think uh, a lot of these, they don't, they don't need really a fresh pitching coach. They just need the system change so they can actually, I could go to the park and see Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander go head to head in a one-to-one duel in the ninth inning. That I would pay money to see, and unfortunately, we're never we're never going to see that again. So, uh, uh, at, a, at a future show, I will tell you, uh, Teddy Simmons, who was one of the more intellectual former players, and I'm honored to be a close friend, former teammate of his. But Teddy has a very very uh, interesting system with the specialization of the game of how to put together a pitching staff. And keep them healthy and uh, have the most effective. And he's got batting average numbers to back it up. So we'll uh, put a little note down with that. And the next show, we'll talk about that. I did. I used my number two pencil. I wrote it right on my note card. 
yeah. the next show. Oh, that's fascinating. I get, I, I'll tell you, Teddy gets right in your face about it. He is intense. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. It's worth uh, kicking around. Yeah. Did you get to give any advice to the two new Hall of Famers, Roland McG- uh, Scott Roland and Fred McGriff, to get a chance to speak with them? Well, I did. I told him I played golf with Fred on uh, Thursday before the weekend festivities, and I said, "Enjoy your round of golf today." I played with Fred and Goose Gossage and uh, Billy Williams' grandson. I said, "Enjoy this day because it's going to be a hectic weekend uh, with all the media, you know, appearances and things." But then, you know, this was my first year as really a, a member. This was my sophomore season, and it was so much more relaxing. But and then speech wise, they were they were both fantastic. You yeah, know, no. uh, so happy to see. You know, they both thanked guys in the past that helped them, and uh, Scott with his family. It, it was exceptional. So, uh, but yeah, I think I, I, my advice to them really wasn't advice. I just said next year you're going to be able to kick back and play more golf and uh, and just uh, with your family and just enjoy it. Actually, mm-hmm. one of the one of the joys of being in the Hall of Fame for me has been, and this year it increased, is getting to know these guys as people. Like I've become very close with good buddies with Lee Smith. Poppy has become, <laughs> he treats me like I'm his best friend. You, know? you guys so, were inducted together, right? Same year. Yeah. And, and we came out of the parade together and walked up the steps and stuff. So you, you get to know these guys as people and their and their wives and their family instead of just seeing them in a uniform as ball players and that that's been very enjoyable Fergie and and Lee Smith you know us us older guys were in were in a particular a, a different class because uh, most of the guys coming in now like uh, Scott and Fred I think they're probably still in there uh, maybe they're in their 50s but uh, they're still young men yeah. Well, I'm going to have to uh, apologize to you because with the the boys and Meg bothering you about making that trip, I'll have to admit that I antagonized that a little bit when they were here because yeah, they... Well, I, I'd, I'd love to. I mean, uh, my wife Margie would go in a heartbeat because she knows how good the fishing is over That's what there. I told them. I said, just look right past Jim and talk to Margie. Talk to her about fly right. fishing. Oh, yeah. You'll have no choice. Nice. But we right. um, yeah, we talked uh, about their, their current coach out there, Marty. And they, they liked a lot of the stuff that I was doing, felt there were some yeah. similarities and then and good enough differences to maybe bring a little symbiosis together over there with a clinic. And I said, I'll tell you what, you get Jim in, I'm in. So Yeah, that's that'd be great. Yeah, Marty, you know, was a world-class softball pitcher. He's the first uh, part of the baseball structure that I met when I went over there five years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's there from Marty Grant. So, yep. yeah, they're they're in good hands, and they're such good kids. I hope one of them makes it. I hope all of them make it. But I st- I hope I'm around when one of those – I can go to a big league game and see uh, – I saw that kid play in New Zealand when he was a teenager. That would be some kind of thrill. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we're they're working with my wife and I with our one-on-one group that we work with globally to help them navigate the process. They got tons of interest from their trip uh, up here where people now – realize that they're real and they saw them apples to apples comparisons against kids that are already going to college next year on scholarship. And, and, uh, we're happy to be a part of that. And, uh, all three kids are going to, they're going to get something collegially that, that really benefits them at a, at a good level with good coaching. But I agree with you. I think those are the type of kids that we want in our game today. They're, they're throwbacks. They are old yeah. school players without a doubt. That's for sure. So you'd be proud of them. You'd be proud of them. The, the impact you made on them probably a decade ago, um, 
influenced them to get to the point that they're at today. So that to me is, uh, that's one heck of a trip that you took. So, um, who knows what you could do with another one. That's a whole nother generation we're talking, talking about. Yeah. Well, I'd I'd love to be able to do it. Cool. Well, um, any, any other messages you want to, we've kept you on for almost an hour. uh, I guess we'll pay attention to that trade line and see who's going to try to buy their way into the tournament. And then I can look at probably the Braves, you know, they, they've stayed put with their roster. Uh, the twins though, you know, they're, they're leading the division, but really they're like 500. So the interesting thing is the American League East with all these teams like Boston, who you didn't expect much of now, they're putting a lot of pressure on their administration saying, well, what do we do? Do you really think we're going to get to the playoffs? And that's where that third wild card, uh, you know, it's diluted. It creates a little fan interest maybe, but from the baseball standpoint, it's it's kind of bogus because they're going to, you know, do what they can to get that third wild card position and they might barely be over 500. And then to think that that's going to be your world series winner, that's uh, it's so much more difficult to win a division than it is a short series. So, but that's what the third wild card has, has afforded these teams and uh, they'll have to make a decision. Do we want to, you know, spend and buy and add to it thinking we can make it, or are they going to sell off their players like uh, the Mets are doing in Chicago? Yeah, and Yankees haven't done a thing. Everybody keeps waiting on them to to add or subtract. Um, I do like that Otani staying with the Angels. I'm glad they made a commitment yeah, to him. Yeah, me too. So, well, good deal. Well, it's good to have you back. Um, I got as a note, next week we're going to go deep into Ted Simmons. I, I want to hear that. That's a selfish show for me right good. there. I want to yeah. definitely hear about that. And then yeah, um, be fun. our audience, we appreciate our audience. They have allowed us to take the next steps in this uh, podcast venture. We have 40,000 plus subscribers now. So it's allowing us to put a business structure behind the podcast. And uh, we'll be opening up our store soon, which will allow our fan base to get product uh, with, with all the shows and our hosts to make a little money off of the shows that they're putting so much blood, sweat, and tears into. And also we have 250 plus, um, affiliates that have, that have aligned with us to allow us to put their, um, information on our site. And, uh, our fan base has dictated those affiliates. It's products that they use already. A lot of patriotic products, a lot of us made products, a lot of sports products are spending tens of thousands of dollars on a year. And rather than pay to subscribe to our podcast service, we've affiliated with those companies they work with already. And that way our fans can keep living their life and they can get a little discount. And we, and our hosts can make a little money off of their blood, sweat, and tears. And I mean that their own, not our audience's blood, sweat, and tears. So, but uh, Jim, thank you for all you do for the show. Your presence is felt every week. Our audience loves what you do and we appreciate you bringing it every week. You throw a complete game every time you step out. Well, good. I like to do that, but thanks a lot. I really enjoy it. No worries. Have a good week. And it's episode 237, Cots Corner here on Real Voices of the Game Productions.